Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 2 The Vanishing Glass. Nearly 10 years had passed since the Dursleys had woken up to find their nephew on the front step, but Privet Drive had hardly changed at all. The sun rose on the same tidy front gardens and lit up the brass number four on the Dursley's front door. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, I was recently given permission by my physical therapist that I was allowed to start exercising again. And it was so exciting for me. I've been sick for a number of years and then was in post-op mode and then was healing And it's just been a really long time since I've been allowed to exercise. So I like invested in an exercise bike and weights. And I was not only was I exercising daily, I was insufferable about it. People would tell me, oh, I've been a little tired lately. And I'd be like, well, you should try this newfangled thing called exercise. (laughs) That is insufferable. (laughs) You have more energy. You sleep better and less. As if the reason I'm not exercising is because I didn't know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then I had a major setback. My endometriosis flared up and I was told by my doctor for two weeks I was not allowed to exercise. And not only that, two weeks was the minimum, depending on when my symptoms let up, I couldn't exercise at all. And the despair that I fell into over this like pretty minor in the scheme of things setback was incredible. 
I just felt like it didn't matter that I'd ever gotten better. And really, I was absolutely hopeless. But then after like 10 days or so, I started to feel a little bit better. And what was so funny to me about it is that I emailed everyone who I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that because my illness is flared up. I was like, never mind. Hope is on the horizon. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be fine. Like that tiny bit of hope just turned everything around for me. I had been in a place of absolute despair and I just needed like I needed an hour of feeling okay in order to cling on to it. And we see that in this chapter with Harry, right? Like he is in such a horrible, horrible, horrible situation. And just the hope of Mrs. Fig not being able to watch him, his mind goes into a million different places. He's like, I could watch TV. I could play on the computer. I could go to the zoo. It's like the world is open to him just from this one small thing. And I think as much as I resist hope because it does often disappoint us because it turns out that I can't do every single thing that that day was like, maybe I'll be able to. And Harry isn't going to be able to play the computer, watch TV and go to the zoo. I just think there's something beautiful about the human condition that when like one little hopeful thing happens, we want to cling on to it so much. That seems like a a beautiful thing about humanity. Okay, there's a lot of things I want to say about that, <laughs> right? I think, yeah, I think there it is a beautiful thing. But first, I just want to go back to like your story about yourself before we talk about Harry and Mrs. Fig in particular, because you said it was a minor setback, and I know what you meant by that, right? Like within the scope of the violence and tragedies of the last couple of weeks and around us every day, not exercising for two weeks, I get it, right? But I think part of what you were describing as the opposite of hope or your hopelessness had to do with the idea that you had imagined a future for yourself, which suddenly seemed to have been lost. And to lose a whole future, like that's not minor, that's not a minor setback. That feels the way it felt for you, which was hopeless, right? Because hope is about imagining a future. You know, we talked so much about imagination last week as it related to frustration, right? But imagination is also operative when we think about what is our future going to be like? And do we have a reasonable chance of acquiring or or living into that future, that is what's really interesting about this chapter for me and Harry. It's that so much of what he's hoping for in this chapter is constrained by what he is capable of imagining. The most he can hope for is that Mrs. Fig breaks her leg and then he gets an afternoon at home. Because those are the limits of what his little room, his cupboard under the stairs, has allowed him to imagine for himself, right? But actually, like we know from later in the series, that Mrs. Fig is his hope. She already is his connection to this other world, to all the relatives and the friends and that he dreams of at the end. Like, because he cannot imagine her as anything other than she is, right? Like, it limits the possibilities of his hopefulness. I appreciate you saying that because it's true about, yeah, I was like, oh, I'll be able to do pilgrimages again, right? It was all these things that I was need my body to be healthy for. Okay, Matt, it is your turn to go first in the 30-second recap. Can I tell you, this is not a lie. I woke up at 5.08 this morning thinking about the 30-second recap. That's because, because I, I did so bad last week. I did so bad last week. And I just, I want the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text community to know that I'm invested in this and that. But the only way out is through. We're going to do it. We're going to keep going every week. And here we go. 
I'm not going to lie, Matt. That's one of the most pathetic things I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel better. I would like for you to lower your attachment to how important this is. The thing is, we just got to do the 30 seconds because this is what I tell myself is like in 30 seconds, it'll be over (laughs) until next week. Okay, you can do this. I believe in you on your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry is in the cupboard under the stairs and Mrs. Dursley comes and says, get out of there. We need you to cook the bacon. And so he goes out and he, he cooks the bacon and makes breakfast and uh, Dudley comes down and it's Dudley's birthday and he's mad because he doesn't, have, he doesn't have enough presents. And so they say, oh, we'll give you two more presents. And so he has enough presents. But Mrs. Fig broke her leg. And so Harry has to go with them to the zoo, which is great news for Harry. And he goes to the zoo and he talks to a snake who is not really from Brazil. And um, and then uh, Pierce does something bad. And then the snake gets out and they're all mad at Harry because Harry, they know Harry's magic and he terrorizes them. And that's all I have to say. Oh my god, Matt, that was so good. Okay, good. <laughs> it's a good thing it's not a 90-second recap because I might pass out. Because <laughs> I did not remember to breathe. I remembered there was a boa constrictor. I didn't remember to breathe. I feel like in order of importance, that seems right to me. Okay, okay, good. We all have to make sacrifices for our art, Matt. Your art is a 30-second recap. Are you ready, Vanessa? I am. You did such a good job. There isn't much to do, but yeah. Three, two, one, go. So Harry has a bunch of spiders on him under the stairs and he doesn't really want to get up, but he does. None of his clothes fit. All these like weird magical things happen to him. Like his hair grows, even though Petunia gives him like a horrible, horrible haircut. He's running away from Dudley and he ends up on the roof of the school and gets in trouble. And so nobody trusts him. Aunt Marge hates the boy, which is very offensive. He um, seems to be able to talk to snakes, which is very exciting. He also had a dream about a flying motorcycle. See, I did those details in order to prove to you that we're on the same team. You did the plot. So I, because you did such a great job, I could just fill in some details. That was great. Everything you said, I was like, oh, that's really great. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a really important detail. However, aren't you also in the habit of having people vote for who won? Like, it's hard for us to be a team. Only at live shows. So yes. So the answer to that question is yes, you are in the habit of people voting to see who won. Okay, good. Let's decide right now that you and I aren't going to do that when we do live shows. Okay, that's great. That's great. Okay, so Matt, this theme of hope. I actually want to start with some of the details that I mentioned because I'm really curious as to what your thoughts are on Harry's relationship to his magic and its relationship to hope. So like I said, Vernon, it says once a week he looks at Harry and says he needs a haircut, but Harry's hair just grows how it grows. There almost seems to be this like ritualistic, sadistic practice of cutting his hair. There's a line in the text that he has probably had more haircuts than all of his other classmates combined. And Petunia once even shaves his whole head, but leaves his bangs to, quote unquote, cover that hideous scar. And yet his hair keeps growing, right? Like he's never had to have a hideous haircut at school. And I'm wondering if you think something like that gives Harry hope or because he's in an abusive house, he's just like, God, I just like wish my hair would stay short. Or really, my suspicion is that it's both, that hope always comes tinged with anxiety or fear that it might not come true. Yeah. I mean, it has to, right? Because otherwise it's certainty, which is different than hope, right? To answer your question, or at least what I think about Harry's relationship to his magic, I think that he doesn't know he has a relationship to magic. Weird stuff happens. 
but what he has been allowed to imagine for himself in this household has been constrained by the household that he's in, right? And so I don't think these odd things that happen to him are things that we, which give him hope because he, he can't imagine that they are things that will free him from the situation he's in. If anything, they make the situation worse because when they you know, emerge out of him, he's punished, right? Like there are things he doesn't have control over, which lead to his abuse and, and isolation and right. And so like, to my mind, I don't, I think he knows that this is different about him. I think he doesn't understand why he's different in this way. I think in his, in the household he lives in, it, it usually leads to bad outcomes. And so he just wants to kind of, he just wants to get away, right? He just wants them to not be around them, right? Because that's what he hopes for. And that's what's really sad about this chapter is like the thing he really hopes is that he gets an afternoon by himself, right? He doesn't actually hope that he could fly on a broom or, or use all his powers to triumph over the Dursleys. He just wants an afternoon to himself. But don't you think that the roof, right, when he's running away from Dudley and his gang and tries to jump over a fence but ends up on the roof, you don't think that that's potentially teaching him a lesson to have faith in himself that extraordinary things might happen to him. We know that it doesn't always work because his glasses are constantly broken because Dudley punches him in the face so much. So I don't think that he can learn a a lesson of consistency, but I feel like it opens up a world of possibility for him. I think it's potentially a lesson. I think it's one he hasn't learned yet, Mm -hmm. right? So I think you're right. I think those memories could be easily converted into hope if a half giant showed up and told him he's a wizard, like they could be conveniently converted into hope. But I don't think they have been yet because even when in the narration, we're kind of inside Harry's head in this chapter, even when he reflects upon magically appearing on the roof, the end of the story is he gets in trouble at school. I mean, Matt, I think that with all of this hope conversation, right, we have to start talking about the abuse in this house. Because I think that There are two different ways that I see hope leading to abuse, and one is by creating complete hopelessness, which we see in the fact that there are no pictures of Harry in this house. He's been given the cupboard under the stairs, right? Like, they try to treat him as if he isn't there, which doesn't give him the opportunity to hope a life for himself, right, if you don't see yourself reflected anywhere. But the other thing that I think can be horrible about hope is when you're given a glimpse of it and then it's taken away from you again and again, which is its own form of abuse, right? Is someone being kind to you and then turning on you and being kind to you and then turning on you? I think that that's my concern about Harry's magic is that it's just so inconsistent. He can't rely on it. It comes, and because he can't rely on it, it actually makes the situation worse. So it seems to me that sometimes hopelessness is better than like just like a little bit of hope or the wrong kind of hope, right? A little bit of hope in a bleak situation seems to me the saddest form of hope. I would rather see someone be hopeless. Well, I would like to think about like what we mean by hope, right? I mean... In this chapter, there are a couple of things operating, which could be read as hope, which I don't call hope, right? So Harry has this moment where he says, today, nothing was going to go wrong. You could call that hope. I don't think that's hope. That's optimism, right? That's just like, things are going to turn out well today, darn it. Like wishing for the best, even though you don't necessarily have evidence that it's going to be best. And then the other thing is at the end of the chapter, when he's dreaming of these relatives that he doesn't have and these friends who are going to, right? 
dreaming is not hope either. And so like, I think you're right. Those kinds of unwarranted optimism or unfounded dreams can just lead to further despair. So what is hope? I think about Congressman John Lewis, the famous and recently departed civil rights activist who marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the 60s for civil rights. And I think of him taking that long walk across that short bridge. And he, you know, he wasn't optimistic. He was realistic. He knew the police on the other side were going to do what they were going to do. And so I think about like, what, what hope did he have walking across that bridge? Is hope the right thing to, the right category of word to use to describe it? And I think it is. I think it's, I think hope has to do with being realistic and facing up to that reality despite it. That the things that you are living for are worth living for. I mean, complete despair, the opposite of hope, complete despair would be to say that it is meaningless, that life is meaningless, that all this stuff is meaningless and there's no point in walking across this bridge. But instead to walk across the bridge and say, even if a bad thing happens, there is something like goodness and truth and dignity that's, that's worth acting upon and acting in acting for, right? And when the world around you, this is what's so like stirring and remarkable about somebody like John Lewis, when the whole world around you, the world he grew up in, is doing its level best to convince you that it is not worth that, that your life is meaningless, right? To walk across that bridge in the face of what you know will meet you is just to insist that the opposite is true, to insist that there is something that's meaningful that is actually worth risking, risking yourself for. I love that definition. My concern is that, therefore, where is the hope in this chapter then? Two things, right? I think, on the one hand, he survived. Like, the fact that he is still resisting in his own way, the fact that he still pushes back where he can, the fact that he runs away from Dudley, the fact that the magical part of him, like, vanishes the glass, right? There is something in him which is resisting the narrative that is all around him every day that tells him he is worthless, that says, nope, we are going to we are gonna push back. And so there's something intuitive in him which wants to say no, like, no to everything around him. And to me, that's hopefulness. That's not saying he believes he can triumph over it, but just he knows it's wrong. He knows that their story about him is wrong. And that's the hopeful part, the part that hopes it's a lie. And then the other question I want to ask is, where ought he to be placing his hope? And interestingly, like it's in folks that he, like Mrs. Fig, right? People who could become allies. Now, Mrs. Fig doesn't help give, do him any favors. But what we know from later on in the story is that the people who actually could provide these connections for him are people he least expects. I mean, he also seems to take hope in his scar, it's framed very sadly that the only thing he liked about his appearance was his scar. Yeah. But loving a scar that your aunt is trying to cover over all the time seems to me to be a radical act of defiance yep. and therefore of hope of like, I'm going to love the thing you hate. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, maybe this is maybe this is the best definition of hope and a quicker and more efficient one than the one that we've been circling around, which is just sort of. Loving yourself when the world tells you you shouldn't. Believing that you matter when the world says you don't. That's actually this act of telling the world, no, you all are living a lie and I'm the one who has the truth. And I'm going to live according to that truth, right? That, that's hope for me because all the evidence Harry has in the world around him is telling him this lie, but he believes in the scar. He believes the scar is a sign of why he is special, not why he's broken. 
that's it means all the things that hope is meant to mean, like like defying the odds and overcoming all the obstacles you think you couldn't overcome. Do you think that it's an act of hope that he starts talking to this boa? Is it hopeful to try to connect with an animal that also seems to be a belief in connection, even though, again, the world around him is constantly telling him that no one will connect with you, not even people at school because they don't want to cross Dudley. This like literal reptile that slithers on the ground, he still believes that connection is possible. I mean, another, if I can rephrase your question, <laughs> that's it, right? Like, please. Why is the boa constrictor a better friend to Harry than Mrs. Fig? Mrs. Fig knows and the boa knows. And the boa reaches out to him and says, like, hey, you're special and we can talk. And Mrs. Fig, because Dumbledore told her probably is just boring and makes him miserable, right? Like, the boa confirms the specialness of that scar in Harry. Yeah. So one of the things that we said that we were going to do is part of treating the text as sacred is holding it to account. And so we're going to offer some critical readings of the text. And I have to say that the boa constrictor stressed me out. Like, where is he going to go? How is he going to get to Brazil? This is supposed to be this like great moment of liberation. But I'm like, I don't understand how he like gets out of the zoo, let alone makes it to anywhere habitable for him. So how is this cool? I mean, I agree that he probably doesn't have anywhere to go. I think freedom is always a good, right? Even if it's temporary. Yeah. But I also like, I want to push back against the idea that he's trying to get to Brazil. Sure. This is the critical reading that I want to put on this, which is... Great. I think there's a little bit of a joke here. I think when the boa says, thanks, amigo, right? When yeah. like, And I think it's because there's this whole question about like where is the boa from because first he thinks he's from harry thinks he's from brazil and then the boa's like no look again i was born here and raised here and this seems to fold into like all the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric about like where is a person from like if your people are from someplace but you were born in another place like why wouldn't the snake who has is only ever lived in britain just say thanks mate right instead of a lazy move that fits into a certain sort of nationalism by granting this one character a Portuguese word at this moment, right? Yeah, totally. This like go back to your country sort of idea, even if you have never been to the country that you're quote unquote from. So one of the things we do with critical reading is try to recognize the gaze which hides within the book itself. Like where is the book looking from? What is it assuming about the world around it? And there's an assumption about foreignness and what it needs, means to be foreign in the way this snake is quite lightheartedly, you know, I'll grant, is quite lightheartedly rendered. There is a, like an assumption about what it means to be foreign to Britain or foreign to another country in this. But that the text itself, and this is what's beautiful about this kind of reading, the text itself is pushing back against because the snake points at the sign and says, look again, I'm not from Brazil, I'm from here. Another moment that I really want us to like offer a critical lens on are the descriptions of Dudley, right? Like as a beach ball in a wig and all of these just like really negative, negative stereotypes about bigger bodies. And again, it's like, whose gaze is this? Is this Harry's gaze? In which case him trying to think negative thoughts about his bully seems like a perfectly reasonable coping mechanism. He's buying into like, stereotypes that he doesn't need to buy into, you can 
dislike someone for being a bully without body shaming them, even in your head. But like he's 11 or 10, right? He's about to turn 11. Like this seems like a really reasonable coping mechanism. But it, it's not totally clear that it's from Harry's point of view, in which case you get the perspective that it is Rowling's point of view and that thinness is goodness and fatness is gluttony and badness. It seems pervasive in these books. And what confuses it for me is that like there's even like good thinness and bad thinness, right? Like Petunia is thin, but in a long-necked, persnickety way, whereas Harry's thinness is good. And I don't quite know how generously to read it, given that it's like under the guise of Harry's eye. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that there's unquestionably like a an unexamined, a critically unexamined body ideal, which is operating in these books, right? If you just kind of pay subtle attention, even to things like like the shape of teeth and hair, right? All these things are like just kind of subtly worked in and subtly reinforce both the gaze from which the narrator or the narration happens, but also like the reader's expectations about what those things should mean. So I'm really grateful to you for pushing that back. In general, like I just want to read Dudley more generously because he's he's also 11. Like he's a child and he is cruel. I'm not giving him a pass for being a cruel bully, but his parents are cruel bullies. And I also think like he has grown up in a house with another child who cannot control his magic at a young age. And the house was probably a terrorizing place to live in. Like things would happen that were scary. And, you know, I just imagine Dudley as like this child who's like surrounded by cruelty and unpredictability. And it's not surprising to me. He doesn't get an excuse, but he's not, it's not surprising to me that he is lashing out and trying to get control and maintain it where and how he can. And because he actually is large and strong, he can exert that control at his school and does. And so I think we should be sympathetic to Dudley. And I think that your comment actually shows us how it's not just the characters in the story who are unkind to Dudley. There might be something in the story itself or his rendering, which is unsympathetic or unkind to, to Dudley or, or less kind than it ought to be. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. You know, earlier in this episode, Vanessa, you spoke about having, well, you said two things. First, you said that the little bit of hope returned to you in the story about exercise was exactly what you needed at that moment, or at least felt so life-giving because you're able to reach out to folks and you could suddenly imagine a future for yourself again. But then later on, you said sometimes that amount of hope is exactly the the cruelest thing because if your hopes are dashed, then it's even harder. You know, we've spent some energy like redefining or undefining or or massaging our definition of what hope is. And if it's something like loving yourself in spite of what the how the world tells you you should feel about yourself, like. How does that new definition help you think through like these two comments you made about a little bit of hope? I mean, what it honestly makes me want to do is get rid of anyone in my life who makes me feel bad when I'm sick. And they nobody does it on purpose. Nobody is like, you're sick. What a loser. But there are people who handle it in a way that make me feel worse. And then there are people like you and Ariana who handle it in a way that makes me feel at peace with the fact that I'm not feeling well and makes me feel empowered to take care of myself and to push myself that I like I have not become a worthless person who's only sick. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, it shouldn't have to be that hard. Right. Like I can just surround myself with people who make it easier for me to walk through the world with hope and still see myself as worth something even when I like can't be productive in the way that I had originally thought that I was going to be able to. So what you just said makes me want to cut people out of my life. Is that what you were going for? Uh, I think that's a really beautiful definition, right? Because it changes the focus about what the outcome of hope is or what building hope is away from like everything turning out the way I wanted it to towards gathering people around me who affirm the story about myself that I need told which is that I'm not worthless, that I'm good, that I am worth loving, all these things, right? And like, if you have those people around you, the world can not go the way you want it to. And you can weather that because you have these people around you, right? And if you don't have those people around you and you're depending upon the world, you're in a pretty dire place. And and that's, that is kind of where Harry is at the end of this chapter. Like he does not have those people around him. And so he is counting on something unexpected happening in the world because he can't account on the people around him to tell him a different story about himself. Well, so, but Matt, as somebody who's religious, help me understand this hope because I don't know how to feel about it. Elizabeth Smart, who is like a woman whose story I'm constantly in conversation with because I think she's remarkable. She was this sort of perfect victim, right? She was this 14-year-old girl asleep in her bed. She got abducted from her bed and kidnapped and tortured for nine months. And this happened 15 years ago, fairly recently. 
She's Mormon. She's very devout. And one of the things she talks about is that amidst the despair of that situation, she never lost hope in God. And she threads this needle so well. She was like, well, this man who kidnapped me is 30 years older than I am. So he's going to die 30 years before me. Therefore, I will be free one day. Right. Like her hope was not overly optimistic. It was within like sort of the reality of the situation. But there was this other thing happening out in the world, which is that people were looking for her so committedly that she got found on the streets of Utah. Like somebody recognized her, a police officer recognized her. She got returned to her family. And that's the kind of hope that I worry people have, that I worry that people in horrible situations are hoping that the world is going to come and save them in some way. Yeah, but I, that you didn't, that's not what she was hoping. I know. To me, what's really interesting about the situation you just described is that when she was in a place where everyone around her was abusing her and telling her she was worthless and she had every reason to believe because of the world as it existed around her that this story about her was true, she turned to an idea of God. Even though all the evidence around me says that my life is meaningless, you know, and I'm an object of violence, she believed that there is something, someone out there who still loves me. Like, that's her scar, right? Yeah. That's her car, scar saying, in spite of everything around me, I am special and I'm not going to lose a sense of that. And I feel like that kind of commitment against the evidence around oneself or the narrative that forms around oneself, that commitment is the precondition for a second thought like, okay, all I got to do is survive 30 years. Right. Now, whether or not it's practical to hope for 30 years or whatever is a different question. And I, I don't have an opinion on that. But that's different from what the people outside of the... You know, her world was constrained down to a particular narrative and she was trapped in that narrative about who she was and what she was for and who she belonged to. And she resisted that by conceiving a God who could undermine or undo that story. Right. I'm so compelled by that and moved by that. And the other thing that I want to say, which is something that Harry does not have, is Elizabeth Smart talks again and again about how she had this voice in her head of her mother saying, I love you no matter what. Yeah. And that she had this competing voice of the Mormon faith saying, if you have sex before marriage, your body is less. And that religion in that one way was actually damaging to her. But her idea of God and the voice in her head that her mother was going to love her no matter what was what got her through and yeah. what, what was what allowed her to hope. And so I think that that is what Harry doesn't have and why his why he's right. so amazing. He's amazing. This boy who's like saying things under his breath and like resisting whenever he can, right? Petunia bangs on the door, get out of bed. And he doesn't hop right to. He like takes a minute, right? Like he just is resisting at every moment, even though he doesn't have that voice in his head of I love you no matter what. You're right. He doesn't have it on its head, but it's written on his body. I mean, that is the I scar, know. right? Like that. I know. It's the sign of a mother who says, I love you no matter what, which is, and this is why there is this kind of magical relationship to a scar. It's why it's the only thing he likes about himself. Like this is the voice in his head, even though he can't hear it, right? Like he, as well as he can hear it, snakes, there is something intuitive in him that says, I am loved or lovable. And that's enough for me to kind of push back in my day to day. Yeah. And that is my favorite idea of God is 
as something that allows people to feel loved, even in despair. If you ask me, it's the only version of God worth having any relationship to, right? I mean, it can be useful, I think, for people to feel loved when it's hard to feel loved. But too often, it is used for exactly the opposite purpose. Yep. As the experience of Elizabeth Smart shows, both those things were in her head, but only one of them was giving her the hope that helped her survive long enough to be set free by a people who are also hoping. So can we talk more about the flat out abuse of Harry in this chapter? Honestly, I don't know how to read this stuff. And this really, this is just a question. Maybe it's a critical reading question. Maybe it's just a Vanessa talk to me. Like, how do we read this stuff? Because this is the first book in the series. It's the second chapter of the first book in the series. And when I start this series, I read it more like as fabular, kind of like a fairy tale-ish sort of story, like Roald Dahl, right? You know, like in the Matilda book, the principal is awful. The abusiveness is almost, it's a little bit surreal. It's kind of played for effect and for a young readership. Yeah, to be dramatic and over the top. And that's how I start it. And so I, I read the Dursleys as sort of like these stock figures, like the Wicked Witch of the East or like, you know, the... The Wolf in Little Red Riding Hood or whatever. Like, I just read these characters as not fully developed characters. But then, like, over seven novels, they become fully developed characters, right? And by the end of the novels, I'm like, wait, that wasn't a fairy tale? Then you people were awful and should probably be prosecuted, right? So, like, yeah, I think that voice remains in this book, but does her voice shift over the whole series? And if so, how should we read these initial scenes? Or is it a consistent voice and something much more like grim and disturbing is going on in these first books? I think on a literal level, her voice shifts. I think that this first book is much more to your point, fabular, right? Like a troll walks into the school yep. and later war walks into the school, right? Like, yeah. I, I think her tone shifts. A lot of things shift. Wizard's relationship to muggle clothing shifts. You know, the putter outer is renamed the deluminator. Apparition goes from being silent to loud, right? Like a lot of things change from this book to the other books. And the thing that I want to offer as the way to read this is that I want to read it in community with the most vulnerable people who are reading the book. So maybe the one way I want to read it is not as a fable, but almost as an opera, an extreme version of how many people feel in abusive homes, in homes that aren't loving, even if they aren't literally locked under the stairs with spiders, that they don't feel loved and they don't feel supported and they don't feel seen and they feel like they're constantly told that they need their body to be different in some way, that this is an opportunity to see themselves in a character that isn't usually represented. But to me, that is the fabular reading. Nobody's real principle is that way. But right. everybody's principle is, seems not kind enough or not generous enough, right? And so that, sure. I mean, sorry, I'm not trying to correct you, but I think that to borrow a unhappy phrase, like we can take it seriously without taking it literally. Even if we treat this as operatic or fabular, right, either of those terms, it does give us a way to listen better with the ears of the most vulnerable, right? And so it, the more generous reading would be to be less hung up on whether her voice shifts and more hung up on who it helps us see and hear better. Right. And that there really are people who live in abuse this horrible, right? Yeah. As much as it is fabular and operatic for hopefully most of us, right. it's not for all of us. Right. 
So Matt, we're now going to do Lectio Divina, and you are going to pick a sentence for us at random for us to treat as sacred. What sentence is it? I've got it, and here it is. But he wished he hadn't said anything. Okay, so step one of Lectio Divina is just like the context and what's literally happening in the sentence. So where are we in the chapter, Matt? So we are in the backseat of the Dursleys car. They're on their way to the zoo after Harry has been freed from the confines of Mrs. Fig's home to accompany them. And he has just had a dream. He just said that he had a dream about flying motorcycles. And this comes right after my one moment of agreement with Vernon Dursley when he's like, motorcycles are terrible. I'm like, yes, Vernon, they are. They are dangerous. He doesn't list dangerous. He says maniacs and young hoodlums, which are not the words I would use. Yeah, right. That's not about motorcycles being dangerous. That's about him hating other people. But okay, if that's what you want to double down on as the thing you agree with. I also hate motorcycles, Vernon. Having worked in an emergency department like for two days, I hate motorcycles. Can I tell you, our son, our son Sam, until he was about four years old, every time a motorcycle would drive by on the road, he would scream out the window, not safe. (laughs) <laughs> because we had told him that they were not safe. And so he thought these people were ill-informed and had yes. had not had not had the proper people raising him. So like our shy little boy would roll down the window at like burly men on Harleys and be like, not safe, not safe. <laughs> oh my God, he's perfect. Yeah. I love Sam. <laughs> okay, so step two of Lectio is where we ask ourselves what other stories this reminds us of. So... The sentence, once again, Matt, is, but he wished he hadn't said anything. Oh, boy. I mean, just stories of, like, where where people are silenced, where they can't speak their truth, where they can't tell who they are, speak what they know or what they believe. Yeah, I mean, what you just said made me think of, like, Dead Poets Society, right, at the end of the movie. This teacher who all these boys love has been fired, And he has taught them a Walt Whitman poem that says, oh, captain, my captain. And these boys have been taught to not say anything or if they do say anything true to be punished and like quickly have wished that they hadn't said anything. And so in like a final act of defiance, as their favorite teacher has been fired, they one by one stand on their desks and say, oh, captain, my captain. And there's something about like, There are too many of them for the principal to punish. And so there's something about if there are enough of you saying it, you can't be silenced. You won't wish you hadn't said anything. I mean, it points back to the things we were saying about community, that like what a dream needs or what hope needs is other people around you affirming it, right? And receiving it. And yeah, this interpretation about sort of being able to speak who one is or to to articulate who one is reminds me of a novel I read a long time ago. I don't know why this popped into my head, but the novel A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. I love that book. I mean, I haven't read it in maybe 25 years. And so I do not remember the details. I just remember that there is a central character who no one understands. He's just very different than everyone else. But it all culminates in a moment where all the idiosyncrasies of who he is conspire to help him save lives and help others. So there's something about like, Maybe not even knowing who you are, what you need to say to the world, and the comfort of being heard and the comfort of all your uniquenesses sort of bearing out in the world is good, as will happen for Harry in this series of books, you know, that reminded me of Owen Meany. 
I also haven't read that book in 20 years, but in that book, Owen is also constantly talking about a dream that he has with penguins and nobody understands what he's talking about. And then at the end, there are nuns that are part of that final moment where he realizes he can save lives. And he looks to his best friend and he goes, look, the penguins. And so the fact that he has been talking about his dream to a friend is actually what allows him this incredible moment. Yeah, that's right. So step three of Lectio Divina is what this reminds you of in your own life. So can you read the sentence one more time for us, Matt? I will read it one more time. But he wished he hadn't said anything. What it's reminding me of is I remember telling this man that I was 12 or 13 and I told him that I wanted to be a writer. And he was like, well, we all want to be writers. And I remember being like, no, I read all the time and I already practice writing like I was writing stories and write, you know, writing essays and trashing them. I was trying to tell him something like true about myself and he was just like so dismissive. We are not in touch. He was a friend of my parents and my parents don't talk and my parents have lost touch with him. But I want my book to do really well and for him to like read about it in the New York Times because he will definitely remember that moment where he told me that we all want to be writers. And he'll be like, oh, I should have been more supportive. That's how that works, right? Absolutely. I think you should count on it. I am. I'm counting on all of it. Um, What about you, Matt? What does it remind you of in your own life? So when I was in seminary, I interned at a church and I had spent a summer in a small country called Lesotho. And I came back from that super fired up and with big dreams of developing a partnership with some of the people I'd met and become friends with in Lesotho. And I was super excited to share my plans and ideas with the parish about how we could you know, be a more globally connected parish and help friends overseas. And they were just they couldn't see what I had seen or feel what I had felt. And so it just wasn't urgent or important to them. And more than anything, they just thought it was unrealistic, right? Like, that's not real. Like, we can't really do that. We can't really make a difference. It's not really part of our lives here. So let's focus on other things. And there is something about just sort of like the stepping on the dream thing, right? Like motorbikes aren't real. Flying motorbikes aren't real, right? There was something about just sort of, this is not part of our practical everyday. So stop talking about it where what I really want to do is talk about it and think about like, how could we change our everyday? How could the world be different than it is and maybe better and more just than it is? So that's what it reminds me of. That so beautifully transitions us to step four of Lectio, which is what doesn't make us feel called to, because I know I've been that person, especially when someone comes back from abroad and they're all inspired. I'm like, yeah, you'll be over it in two weeks. And so, but all I do is hasten them getting over it by saying things like that. Or I don't think I explicitly say that, but I act like that. And when instead what I should be doing is like fanning that flame and saying, yes, like you're passionate about this new thing that you saw, keep it up. So, so what I feel called to is, is not being annoyed and shutting things down when people come back from amazing experiences, because I do. How about you, Matt? What does it make you feel called to? I think I just need to respond with more generosity to the kind of wildness of my children's imagination. I don't think I'm necessarily bad at this, but you can always do more and do better, especially because children have such like wonderful and creative imaginations and they're so easy to cultivate, but it's also so easy just to just, if you're not paying close enough attention to just 
make them feel like they're not hearing what they're imagining, <laughs> right? Yeah. So this makes me want to be more patient and listen a little bit harder and be a little bit more open to the to the wild ideas they have. Yeah. I get very annoyed with wild ideas that the kids bring into the house when it requires us buying new stuff. I'm like, yeah, but are you really going to use it? Not stuff. Or is it going to sit in the basement? I was, I'll, I'll be, I'll put a finer point on this example, right? Like they, they'll do drawings of things, right? And they'll draw like an animal that they might even name as an animal in the world, like a raccoon. And I'll talk to them about how to like make it look more like a raccoon because they're good drawers. And I think I can do that. But also maybe like what's in their head is just this wild raccoon the universe has never seen. And that's what I should be drawing out of them. You know what I mean? Like, that's totally like, yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Olivia. Um, hi, I, my name is Olivia, and I just had something I wanted to share with you. Um, I just discovered your podcast about a week ago, and it's been so amazing. I've already finished listening to um, the first season. And just something that has been really meaningful for me this past week is when Harry finds out that he's a wizard, you talked about how that's a moment of intense personal growth for him when he learns that there's something about himself that he didn't know. And it's a really big thing. And for me, um, this last week, I was diagnosed with autism. And I'm 19. 
and I just learned this about myself and it's this like huge piece of information about who I am that I had I had no idea and you know nothing really has changed about me but I feel like I'm more aware of explaining things that Denver made sense and it's just been this this big revelation for me and I'm really really feeling um like I can commiserate with Harry when he learns this huge piece of information about himself and he's able to explain things that he never had an explanation for and it doesn't change anything about who he is fundamentally he's still the same Harry but he now knows this huge new fact about him and I was just wondering um what you guys think about that and if you think that learning something new about ourselves does change who we are or are we still the same person that we've always been but now we just have a new piece of information and a new way of describing ourselves yeah thank you for all that you do Olivia, thank you so much for that voicemail and for sharing your diagnosis with us. I know that a lot of people are going to be able to commiserate with that moment of getting news about yourself from the outside and having to integrate it in some way. And some of that feeling like a blessing and some of that feeling more difficult to integrate. Olivia, I also wish that I had an answer to your question. I think that the answer can be both or neither, right? Sometimes... We learn something about ourselves and it's heartbreaking. Sometimes we learn something about ourselves and it's a cause for celebration. Sometimes we learn something about ourselves and we're, it feels like the whole world is clicking into place. And I would say mostly it's, it's often all of those things at once. Matt, do you have anything wise to say? Yeah. First, I just also want to thank Olivia for sharing this with us and for asking this really deep and important question. And I have a really kind of irritating answer, which is, I think both, you know, just to look at the the example from the book that we're looking at this week, you know, Harry doesn't become a wizard when they tell him he's a wizard. It was always true about him. But how he is in the world is really affected by the way other people acknowledge and receive that information, right? I mean, the Dursleys know he's a wizard, but deny its reality for him and actually use it as a reason to to mistreat him. But when he comes into a community of people who know that it is already true about him and for that reason, show him love and friendship and care and concern, it changes how he is in the world. Right. And so like this fact about him has not changed, but his experience of being himself in the world does actually fundamentally change. And so I think it can be both. I mean, it's not truer one day than it could be the next because facts are facts, but insofar as who you are is what it feels like to be in the world, that can really be fundamentally changed by this information being revealed to yourself or to others. And it sounds like you're grateful for that revelation, Olivia. And if you're grateful for it, then then we are too. Thank you so much, Olivia. And now we would like to remember people who were loved by our community who've been lost due to COVID. Janik Schmelzer, who is 26 and a friend, Jody Edgett, who is 61, a mother, a deadhead, and a lover. Lois May Hevron, who is 90, a mother of 10, and sassy. John Uncles, who was 69, a father of two, a husband, and a lover of dad jokes. 
Harry H. Riley, who was 76, and a beloved funny papa. Stephanie Smith, 29, daughter, fiance, and community builder. May their memories be a blessing. And Matt, we now get to offer our own blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Pierce Polkis, who is Dudley Dursey's friend. And, I, you know, we don't know much about him, and it seems like he's just as cruel or as sympathetic to, to Dudley's cruelty. But it's hard being 11, and he seems like kind of a frightened and, and a happy child. And uh, this blessing is not meant to endorse any of his behavior, just to, to wish that he can escape it. Vanessa, who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Mrs. Fig. First of all, it sounds like she lives a very lonely life. Like there aren't other magical people around her, right? She's like living pretty isolated. I hope that she like goes to Diagon Alley and has a beer with people every once in a while. But we don't know about that. And she also has to make herself small in these interactions with Harry. She doesn't get to be herself. And that feels like an order from on high. So I just want to bless her for, I feel like many of us feel isolated right now and often feel like we have to make ourselves small in one way or another. So I want to bless Mrs. Fick for that. Usually we select a theme through which to read our chapter each week, but next week we're going to be joined by a guest host, Jolie Doggett, who is inviting us to read chapter three, the letters from no one through the theme of obedience. So exciting to have Jolie on. You're going to love her, Matt. I can't wait to meet her. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and find listeners who are discussing the episodes in our Facebook common room. You can join one of our local groups and come join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon, where you get weekly bonus conversations with me and Matt, where we are less depressing. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to Olivia, who sent in our voice memo, to Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all those who sent in the names of loved ones lost to COVID. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. is rooting for you i yeah i know that makes it worse right like you go two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning you know run around third you get the hit and then you strike out they're all rooting for you that's why striking out is so awful can i give you another metaphor well yes it's like it's the first inning and you're like the seventh batter on the team and there's one out and you guys are having a good inning and everyone's like oh i hope he does well too it's his first season he's a rookie we want him to do well. Okay, that's a better metaphor. I think I'd still be nervous stepping up to the plate. Sure, but like mm-hmm. it's not bottom of the ninth. Okay. Like people betting on you aren't going to make or lose their rent money because of your performance right now. Well, good. I hope not.